Look at the time. I am going to go through this as quickly as we can today. But um, one of the things I've really felt like the Lord has said over these last 21 days to me and maybe to us as a church, and you'll hear it uh, more and more as we go through the, the weeks ahead, is learning to value what the Lord has said. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of you are having dreams from the Lord, but you're not journaling them, you're not writing them down, you're not seeking him to say, Lord, are, are you speaking to me through these dreams? Um, and if you don't value it, he won't give it to you, okay? Sometimes we come into church and, um, you know, we're so distracted. We, we don't fight nodding off. If you are nodding off, stand up. Or have someone beside you watch you. I mean, value, it, this isn't about me. I don't care who's sitting up here. If we're not coming in here to hear a word from the Lord, then let's stop coming. Okay? But if we're coming in here to hear a word from the Lord, we have got to engage ourselves in what is being said. Whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's in here, you know, we, we like to text each other, we like to check Facebook. And by the way, when I was in Minneapolis, I checked in at the airport, and uh, there were people in this room during the church service who liked it. Yeah. That's just not okay. Okay? I know that, oh, Pastor, you're, it's just not okay. I mean, if it's the Lord, what are we doing? And in, in fact, in a couple weeks, I'm going to show you that from the Word, that that's just not okay. And not in a legalistic way, but in, in a, a way that I believe the Lord is going to, to make it real to us. But I want to I wanna challenge you, value what the Lord says. Don't just do your devotions, value what the Lord says. Value what He's speaking to you. Start to journal what the Lord is saying to you. Write it down. Because here's the thing, you, if we're not going to value what he says, he's not going to bother speaking. You hear? He's not going to speak. But for today, we're starting a new series. Um, the series that we're going to go into is called Why Not Women? Why Not Women? Uh, I have been excited for this series for a very long time um, because in many of our um, upbringings in many of the denominations we grew up in or in the churches we've been a part of, we have been taught that women are not allowed to do certain ministries in the body of Christ, and we've used the Bible to support that. And uh, I grew up in a church where I didn't even know this was an issue uh, until I went to Bible school, and, and really until I moved to Huron, I didn't realize that it was an issue. Uh, I, I just was taught that you know women were allowed to be uh, in ministry. In fact, there was a time I remember as a child where our first woman was ever elected to our deacon board, and I, I do recall that, that that was a big deal and um, that there were people that were upset about that, but you know, as a, a, a nine or 10-year-old kid, it's not on the radar, uh, but I can recall that. And so I knew this was an issue, and this is something that divides the church even still today, that there are those that say, no, Scripture clearly prohibits women from doing certain things in the body of Christ, and so they're not allowed to do that. And then there are others that say, no, that's not what the Scripture says. And so we're going to look at three passages specifically that are the most commonly used and the most difficult to understand passages of Scripture in relating to women. There's one in 1 Timothy where it seems like the Apostle Paul is saying women should not teach in the body of Christ. They should not have an authority position over men. In 1 Corinthians 11, it seems like that Paul is saying women have to wear a head covering and men are the head of women. 
I mean, we've been taught that. And in 1 Corinthians 14, it says women should be silent in the church. And so is that really what these passages of the scripture are saying? And oddly, there are not a lot of denominations that take all three of them very literally and apply them to their doctrine. They take partial parts of them. And, and, and so my thought is, it's either all or none. I mean, I don't understand how we can take these three passages and just pick which ones we're comfortable accepting and which ones maybe we think are over the top. We really have got to dive in and understand what these passages are talking about. And so whenever you come to a difficult to understand passage in Scripture, here is what you do. First, you interpret the Bible with the Bible. Before you ever go to any outside source, What does the Bible say? And so that's what we're going to do first today. We're going to take what does the overarching message of the Bible teach about this issue that I'm dealing with? So whatever passage of Scripture you're dealing with that's difficult, you have to look from Genesis to Revelation. What does it say? And lay it all out and peer at it, and then you can put those difficult passages within that context because it's not going to contradict the overall message of Scripture. And so we have to look at that. We have to look at the context of the book in which it's written. In 1 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, what's that context? We have to look at the context of the chapter. Keeping in mind, chapters and verses were added by men later on, okay? Even the the translations you have. Sometimes a difficult passage, if you look at 15 different translations, you'll almost get three or four different, complete different meanings. And so how do we rationalize that? Well, this was translated by human beings, from the original language. And they're shaped by their culture, by their understanding of scripture, and they have done the best they can with what they discern to be what that is saying. But that doesn't mean they're right 100% of the time. Because some of these difficult passages of scriptures are what we call relative truths. Meaning, they're not truths that apply to all people, all times. Now the Bible is full of absolutes that are truths that apply to all people all the time. The problem is when we take the absolutes of scripture and we make them relative, we get liberalism. But when we take the relative truths of scripture and we make them absolutes, we get legalism. And how do we know the difference? Well, you have to study the word. You have to dig in. We have to dialogue with one another. We have to sharpen and help each other grow. We have to dig into the culture and the history. Otherwise, we'll take those difficult passages and we'll misinterpret them. I believe the enemy has used two things in particular to really cripple the body of Christ in these last days. One is this. He has taken women out of their role within the body of Christ. Think of it, half of the body of Christ cannot function to their full potential because of the misinterpretation of these passages of Scripture. He's annihilated half of our army before we've even started the battle. The second is in regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has so put people in a box and in fear about the Holy Spirit and how he operates today and desires to operate today that those two things have kept the kingdom of God from advancing. I wonder how much of the kingdom has not grown because of those two misunderstandings. And so we're actually going to do two series to try to peel back the layers and make them more clear uh, to us. And so I hope that through these these four weeks as we study this, that I give you some reasonable doubt. 
I cannot take these four passages of scripture and say with absolute certainty that my way is correct. But I can give you absolute doubt or reasonable doubt that the other interpretation isn't correct. And in fact, beyond that, I believe when we look at the the total view of scripture on this issue, that this interpretation makes more sense. And I'll show you that today. We're gonna do that today first. So get a pencil, get a piece of paper, and write these verses down. Because we're gonna download a plethora of information into your brain to show you that from beginning to end, this is the view of scripture. And so to do it, we gotta go back to the beginning. In the book of Genesis, we're gonna look at God's design for women. Now, many people teach that Adam is superior to Eve because he was created first. Now, if that logic holds true, then anything created before man would be superior to man. That logic doesn't hold true. It's God's design for creation, not the succession of creation that give it value. Okay? It's not where in the order it was created. The sun is not more valuable to God than humans. But here's the thing. If God would have created humans before the sun, see the problem? Yeah, we needed the sun in order to, to live and function on this planet. So the sun had to come first. So just because there's a successive order, God's design is what we need to look at. And in Genesis chapter two, we look at God's design. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. We're not gonna be able to hit a whole lot of that, but you've gotta understand that we are united into one. There's, that, there's just a whole lot in there. The way that God is one, we are one. We are created in his image. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and as humans, male and female, we are, in essence, one before him. It, almost in that same type of essence. Now, this word, a helper fit for him. This is the Hebrew word. Now, I don't know a lot about Hebrew, so I gotta go to a lot of other sources, and so I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it. But that word is a compound word that means helper suitable for him. The first part means someone more capable, more powerful, and more intelligent. Because think about it. If you need help, you don't go to someone who has less ability than you. You go to someone who has more ability. If I need help with math, I don't go to someone who has a D. Are you with me? You look for someone who's got an A because they're not going to be a help to me. In fact, this Greek word is used, this E-Z-E-R, that's used in Psalm 121 where the psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord. That's how powerful that word is. Now it's a compound word. The second part means to be equal or adequate to himself. So if God had not put the second part of that compound word on, today I would be preaching a series called Why Not Men. (laughs) Seriously, that's what we would be teaching. What God has done here is to say that men and women were created equal. Eve was not created to serve Adam. She was created to serve with Adam. That was God's design from the beginning. Look at Genesis chapter one, backing up a chapter. Let us, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
make human beings in our image to be like us, to be three in one, two in one, to be mutually submissive, mutually interdependent on each other. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals. God created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, govern it. Who is to govern it? Them. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry on the ground. Now, we all know about the fall. We know that sin entered the picture, so we gotta skip over to Genesis chapter three. He's speaking to the serpent here. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Let me tell you something right here. That word offspring is the word for seed. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we hear the words seed of a woman. Culturally, there is no seed of the woman at this time. It's the seed of man. Women didn't have a seed. Men were the seed. Women were just the house, if you will. Women weren't good for anything after the fall other than to bear children. They didn't have seed. It wasn't until scientifically we started to understand things, women do indeed have seed in them. But God said it in Genesis chapter 3. You wouldn't notice that if you don't go back to the original language because this guy just put offspring. Seed. Okay? He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Meaning the Christ is coming. Then he says to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and the pain where you give birth. And you heard, you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. Now, That word desire means to desire to dominate or to be independent from, okay? The word he will rule over you means to gain control or be master of. You've got to understand when sin entered the picture, immediately blame enters the picture. There's a jockeying for position and power that did not exist prior to the fall. The serpent made me do it. The woman that you gave me made me do it. I mean, immediately, they're, they're pushing each other and jockeying for power, jockeying for position, and what God is saying here is not, here's my design for what happened, but here's the result of the curse. The result of the curse is now, woman, you will desire to break free from your husband. You will desire to control him. You will desire to master him, but husband, you're going to dominate your spouse. You're going to dominate. That's going to be your thing. You're going to rule over her. This is not my design. This is the curse. This is the curse. And we see it from day one in the curse. And we see throughout the culture and history of the world, women women being put into a secondary position. Men literally have dominated over them throughout history. And it's time to set them free. Why? Because the curse is broken. When Jesus Christ broke the curse, he set them free. Men no longer have to dominate. Women no longer have to seek to control. We return to the mutually submissive, mutually interdependent value that God originally designed for us in Genesis chapter 1. Are you with me? I hope so. So let's look at the Old Testament. Because here's the thing. If we can find examples throughout the scripture of women leading men and God blessing it, 
we are no longer able to make the qualification that men or women can never serve over men. Okay, if that's the established parameter of scripture, that it's happened and God's blessed it, we can't say never. And so those passages of scripture have to be saying something else. So let's look at Exodus chapter 15. Miriam, the prophet. Now here's the thing. Some of your translations put the word prophetess. There were not prophetesses in the Bible. There were prophets. Some of them were men and some of them were women. But in our desire, or maybe our fear, we like to say prophetess. Miriam was a prophet. They say, see, some people say that when Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, uh, God struck Miriam with leprosy, but not Aaron, because she was a woman. No! He struck Miriam and not Aaron, because Aaron was the high priest. And that would have made him unclean and therefore put the people at risk because there was no high priest to be able to go before God for them. Miriam had a position of authority in the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 15, the scripture tells us. In Judges chapter 4, verse 4, Deborah was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. That does not mean she sat on a bench with a robe. That judge in the Israel time was the one who litigated for the people. They judged right and wrong for the people. They did that, but they also executed justice. They led troops to battle. They served as the ruler of the entire nation. That's what a judge did in Judges chapter 4 verse 4. So that's what we see. Then we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 King Josiah looking for instruction from the Lord goes to a woman by the name of Huldah, a prophet, and seeks from her counsel from the Lord. The king of Israel is inquiring of a woman prophet the word of the Lord. And she prophesies, I didn't have time to write this whole passage, but read it, it's amazing. She brings about a national repentance and blessing on this nation. A woman, go figure. Didn't know women could do that stuff. Queen Esther, I, I shouldn't joke, because here's the thing, I, I don't wanna make light of it, and I don't wanna mock denominations that believe different than us, because it's not something to mock. It's something I believe that has brought damage to the body of Christ, and the way to fix it, I don't believe is mocking, but it is setting the, the story straight, so I repent of my mocking. I shouldn't have done that. Queen Esther, uh, we know her story. Isaiah chapter eight, verse three. Isaiah refers to his wife as a prophetess. Again, that word, prophet. So let's move into the New Testament, the time of Jesus on the earth. We know that Mary sings this prophetic song about the Messiah within her. Now, here's the thing. If we are not allowed to have a woman as a man teach me, how can I take the passages of Scripture given to us from women and teach myself from them? We would have to remove them and only teach those at women's Bible studies. That's 886 verses of the Scripture have got to be taken out because women can't have authority over men. There's got to be more to the story. Because we see the, the value of women stamped throughout the, the scripture. We're seeing it in Mary. We're seeing it in Elizabeth. Elizabeth becomes filled with the spirit and prophesies about the baby in Mary's womb before the spirit is even being poured out on the earth. A woman. I mean, why not, why not Zechariah? Why didn't the spirit come on Zechariah and have him prophesy to Mary? 
Because God makes no distinction. In Luke chapter two, we're introduced to Anna, a prophet in the temple. And she speaks of the Messiah that has come. Then Jesus, in his teachings, begins to, if you will, undermine this idea that women do not have value. Their only value is for their their husband. That was the culture of the Jewish day. The only value women had was their husbands, their sons. If you couldn't bear a son, you had no value. The only value or reward you could get from God would come from how well your husband or your sons lived. That was your reward in heaven based upon them. You could do nothing to gain your own reward in the mind of the cultural Jews. But Jesus institutes something in Luke chapter 13. He's teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. The teacher sits in the front. The women don't sit in the front. The men sit in a certain place in the synagogue in the front. The women were relegated either to the rear or to a balcony in the synagogue because they don't have value. I mean, hey, just be thankful you're in the room is the Jewish train of thought. So Jesus is teaching, and there's a woman who has a disabling spirit for 18 years. She's bent over and could not straighten up, okay? Now, you would think Jesus in his compassion would see that and go to her, right? That's the Jesus we serve. He's compassionate. He's gonna, I mean, you're gonna make a bent over crippled woman come to you? That's not very compassionate. I mean, how long do they have to wait for her to get up there? Seriously, think, think this through. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is bringing her to the front. He's bringing her to the place that the women aren't supposed to come. You come up here. Come here. And look at what he calls her in this passage. She was bent over. She couldn't straighten up. Woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her immediately. She's straight. She glorified God. Jesus, because the Pharisees are upset, it's the Sabbath, why are you healing her? She's a woman, she's in the front. I mean, they're ticked about a lot of stuff here. And Jesus is like, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham. Can I tell you something? Jesus just didn't make it up on the fly. Every word he spoke was intentional. He called her something no one ever spoke before. A daughter of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. But guess what? Jesus said he's got daughters. And he has instituted something here, and you will see it in, I don't have time. I mean, there are books written on this. If you want to study it more, uh, but I don't have time to dig into it. But Jesus in his teaching undercuts this idea of women being secondary over and over. In Luke chapter 10, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Um, you gotta understand something. Martha's distracted. Uh, she sat at the Lord's feet. Look at that, that verbiage. Sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And Jesus says to Martha, look what he says at the end of this passage. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. Why? Because the woman's place is preparing the meal not sitting at the master's feet. And when you tie in the fact that that phrase, sitting at the master's feet, means something more than just relaxing and listening to Jesus teach. Look in Acts chapter 22, verse three. This is what Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, when the apostle Paul was educated under Gamil, one of the leading Jewish scholars of Paul's day. He was educated him at his feet. 
I learned to follow our Jewish. He was a pupil, and the term for pupil is one who sat at his feet. Oh, what, what a coincidence that, how cool that Luke chose to say those two words together. Not a coincidence. Not cool. Intentional. Mary has chosen to be a pupil of the Messiah. That's not her place, Lord. She's supposed to be helping me serve. And Jesus, see, we've made this all about, um, you know, you need to learn to worship at the feet of Jesus. Perhaps what Jesus was doing here was saying, Martha, we're instituting something brand new here. And right now, Mary needs to sit at my feet. She needs to be a pupil because I'm showing the entire world I'm taking daughters too. It has nothing to do with whether we're supposed to be in the kitchen or in the worship service or we've made it about all these other stuff when what, what could be going on here is Jesus saying, she's, been, she's my pupil. And we're changing culture right now. So uh, she's chosen it and it's not gonna be taken away. Then in Luke chapter 11, we have this story of this woman. Are y'all still here with me? We're gonna go a little long, and, but we're, not, we're gonna drag it out, I promise. And so just hang with me. Um, in Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus is preaching and this woman gets really exuberant. She's definitely Pentecostal and she's like, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came and the breasts that nursed you. And we're all like, but think of what she's doing. She's in a culture where Mary's only chance of reward in heaven is her son. And her, she's got a good one. Blessed is your mother. I mean, she, her reward in heaven is so great because you are a good son. And what does Jesus say? Even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Not dissing mom, but saying, you know what? Mom's only value is not me. If she hears the word of God and puts it into practice, she now has the same right to reward as men. Jesus is constantly undercutting this cultural idea that women don't have value. In all of his teachings, it's, it's prevalent and it's there. If you think of the fact that Jesus specifically told his disciples who he was and what he was gonna do and they didn't get it, who was it that prophetically got it and prepared him for his burial? Who was it that anointed him and caught it when all the men missed it? Can I tell you something, men? When your wife says, hey, I just got a feeling about that one, latch on to that, okay? Because these women got a feeling about Jesus and they anointed him and all the men in the room got indignant because she's a sinful woman and she's touching you and surely if you were a man of God, you would know what kind of woman is touching you. And Jesus is looking around the room, probably heartbroken, that I want every one of you to get it, and you're not even close, and she's got it. And he says, you know what? She's been forgiven so much. She loves much. She's realized what she's been freed from. No longer under bondage. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't have any women disciples. Well, that could be scandalous in his day. Think of it. In when you went fishing, uh, the fishermen went in the nude. Women didn't get invited on the fishing trips. And all the women said, amen, unless you're a woman that likes to fish. 
So for Jesus to culturally take a woman with him in some of these intimate moments as one of his apostles uh, could have been a scandalous mark on his ministry. And literally, we could, he could be accused of so many things. So I don't think it's weird that Jesus chose 12 men at all. In that day, it just wouldn't have been appropriate for it. But there were women who were constantly following him and associated with his his ministry. Luke chapter 8 tells us about several of these women. And it says that Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns, preaching and announcing the good news. He took his 12 disciples along with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits. I don't think it's significant or un- insignificant that Luke is the one that constantly references women. Because Luke is kind of an outsider in this. And so in Luke's culture, women really have no value. And he is amazed at the value that Jesus is giving to women. Make no mistake, Luke is, I think he's picking up on this. And so he consistently makes reference to it. Then we look at the early church. Acts chapter 1. They all met together in united prayer with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. I mean, why doesn't he just say there were a group of them that met together, united in prayer? Because Luke is emphasizing there are women here. They're meeting for prayer. Men and women don't pray together. It doesn't happen in the culture. This is new. And the thing is, is in Acts chapter 2, God says, I like it. He pours out his spirit on this group. Stamp of approval. How can we say when God puts his stamp of approval on it and these same women are prophesying on the street and people are hearing them that women can't do that? I mean, that's just like the, the Gentiles aren't allowed to be saved, but yet we hear this, them speaking in tongues and prophesying just like us. This is a Peter Cornelius moment, if you will. In Acts chapter 2, Peter referencing Joel chapter 2. What does he say? I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I'm going to pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. That's what he's going to do. In Acts chapter 21, we know that the evangelist Philip had four daughters with the gift of prophecy. These are not isolated scriptures, I promise you. This is a sampling of stuff that I'm putting in front of you. In Romans chapter 16, this is the last passage we're going to look at in depth. So if you're getting sleepy, hang on. We're almost at the end. I'm about to land the plane. In Romans chapter 16, but you know, we have to begin our descent. (laughs) Paul commends in this passage of scripture seven different women. We're going to not look at all seven, so breathe deeply. Phoebe is a deacon in the church. Some of your translations say servant. But let me tell you something about that word deaconion, meaning minister or servant, used throughout the scripture. Within the context that it's used, it could mean a slave. It could mean a servant. It's actually in Romans chapter 13 used as ruling authorities, the, the servants of God, the governors. It's... Used in the church, meaning ministers in the church. Now, the majority of the time that it is referencing church ministry, overwhelmingly, the term minister is applied. 
But again, I think translators get a little nervous. You know, it's okay calling her a deacon. But to put her on the same plane with the Apostle Paul, but the thing is, is that word is used of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. That word is used of Apollos in the New Testament. This is the exact same word. And he starts by commending Phoebe. And it wasn't because she was good at giving hospitality to them in ministry. It wasn't because she had a great bed and breakfast. It's because she was a minister in the church. And Paul is recognizing this woman to the church in Rome. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor. Okay, if I don't let a woman have authority over the people in the church, if I think women should be silent in the church, why in the world is he telling us that Phoebe's worthy of honor? There's got to be more to this story, I promise you. Help her in whatever she needs. She's been helpful to many, especially to me. Give my greetings to, here's the next one, Priscilla and Aquila. <laughs> it's not by accident that Priscilla's name comes first. Okay, in our day and age, it doesn't matter which one you say first. You know, in fact, when, when we were Fran and, and Velmer, we always say Fran and Velmer. Fran and Velmer. We don't say Velmer and Fran. Maybe you say Velmer and Fran. I say Fran and Velmer. Why do I do that? I don't know. But with other people, I say the husband first. And so when I started preparing this, I actually started making a list of which one I say man first and which one I say women first. And why do I do that? I don't know. Because there really is no legitimacy. I mean, now, at James Valley, it's usually Christy and Tom because Christy teaches there and I'm coming with her. But here, it's Tom and Christy because I'm the pastor and she's coming with me. And so, but it's just who, who they know first maybe that they use to reference. In this culture, if you put the woman first, you better have a good reason, okay? Because women don't have value. So the fact that Priscilla's name in the majority of places they're referenced in the scripture comes first ought to tell us something. That her ministry obviously has a little bit more emphasis than her husband's. He's with her. And that's okay. I love this stuff. This is just great. Um, they were the ones that taught Apollos in uh, Acts chapter 18. Apollos comes in, only knowing the baptism of John, and Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and explain to him the resurrection more, great, more in, in great detail. They explain the way to him. Priscilla and Aquila. It wasn't that Aquila taught and Priscilla made the, the donuts and coffee. Okay? Get your mind around this. Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. So back to Romans 16. The last woman I want to look at is Eunius. Paul says, uh, give my greetings to Mary who has worked so hard for your benefit. Notice I've skipped some verses here uh, in between just for the sake of time. Greet Androgynous and Unia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Now, here's the thing. Adronius and Unia. Unia is a feminine name, feminine noun in the Greek. Yet there are translations that the next sentence doesn't start with they. It starts with these men. These men. You know why they do that? Because the phrasing of this sentence, among the apostles, can literally mean among in a sense of out of the apostles. 
meaning not just they were known well among the apostles, meaning the apostles knew them well, but they were well known out of the apostles. And because of that, some people are a little nervous. If Unia's a woman, and she comes, now we don't know for sure that that's what that means, but it really seems like that's what that means. So that would make a woman an apostle. The world ain't ready for that yet. So these men, and maybe, maybe it's a misprint in the Greek. Maybe it's the male form of Unia, and it's two men. See how much fear creeps in here? We're afraid to think that maybe there was a woman apostle, so we're going to have to change our translation of that. And that's sad because it doesn't fit our mold. We can't translate it the way we actually think it's translated. One last passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. We're going to study this one in great detail more, but I want to show you this. This is from the Amplified Version. It says, Any woman who publicly prays or prophesies, explaining that word prophecy, teaches, refutes, reproves, admonishes, or comforts. That's what that word means. When she is bareheaded, she dishonors her head, her husband. It is the same as if her head were shaved. Now, we're going to pick that apart and talk about that on a different day, but I don't want you to miss the forest through the trees. Any woman who publicly prays or prophesies, if Paul says two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 13, 14, excuse me, three chapters later, that women are to remain silent in the church, why on earth does he take the time to explain how women should publicly prophesy? Somebody needs to explain that. But the fact that Paul openly declares right here, for women to publicly do this, here's the steps we're gonna, that it has to take means that they're able to publicly prophesy. So we're going to pick those pieces apart, but that's the clearest statement that Paul makes about the prophetic public ministry of women. You see what I mean? When we develop a theology about any subject, when we apply it to the test of what does the entire scripture say, it ought to strengthen our position. If our position is women should not be in leadership or have authority over men or publicly do anything with men present, I don't think the totality of Scripture supports that. I think it undercuts it. If I take three isolated passages of Scripture about salvation and about the resurrection, and I do this same test and I look at it from beginning to end, it's not going to undercut salvation. It's going to strengthen it. This position has to be developed around this idea of what it says. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to pick apart these three, especially these three passages of Scripture, and see how they fit in this entire mold from beginning to end. But I'm going to make the statement that I do not believe women serving in ministry or leadership in the church is a result of the feminist movement. I believe it's a result of the curse of sin being broken. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, seed, heirs according to the promise. That is powerful. I want you to stand with me.
As we close today, I want to pray for all of us as we go through this process these weeks together. And so, Father, first of all, God, I repent for any way that I have misunderstood or misapplied your word towards any woman in the body of Christ. If we have done it in ignorance or whether we have done it purposely, God, we want to turn from our ways. We want to understand what your word says about women in ministry. We want them to be as free as the death of Christ has made them. We do not want to set parameters based on our culture or based on our own feelings or even as a result of the curse itself that causes us to want to rule over them. God, we want to free them according to your word. So forgive us for any way that we've misinterpreted that. Father, for women in this room today who have been chained emotionally, spiritually, mentally by followers of Christ who have used your word to put them into bondage. Holy Spirit, I pray for your freedom. Your word says that if we know the truth, the truth will make us free. And so I pray that they would know the truth, that they would apply the truth to their lives, and that they would be able to walk fully liberated and free in whatever calling you've placed on their lives. Father, as we study your word together over these next several weeks, Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth. Give us wisdom that comes from you and help us to apply it to our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have been great. Thank you for being patient and waiting a little bit long with us, but uh, God bless you as you go this morning. Rejoice. The Lord.